Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. Our current series is called The Ripple Effect. Our goal is to understand how the forces that shape our lives affect us personally and then ripple out beyond us to impact our friends, our neighbors, and the world at large. I hope you enjoy. And with that, let us continue worship with our first scripture reading, which comes to us from 1 Chronicles 20, verses 1 through 5. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, Joab led out an army, ravaged the country of the Ammonites, and came to besiege Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Joab attacked Rabbah and overthrew it. David took the crown of Milcom from his head and found that it weighed a talent of gold. And in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. He also brought out the booty of the city, a very great amount. He brought out the people who were in it and set them to work with saws and iron picks and axes. Thus David did to all the cities of the Ammonites, Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you. And do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so we are doing a sermon series for the first six weeks of the new year called The Ripple Effect. This is based on the visualization of the ripples that occur in water. And the phrase, the ripple effect, comes from this idea that you can have an event that begins in one place, and then the effects of that event ripple out, and they impact situations and circumstances that were not connected to the initial event. The idea behind this sermon series is that we want to talk about the various forces that shape our lives, and how these forces can ripple out beyond us to impact our friends, our family, our neighbors, and the world at large. And then Every week we talk about how Jesus and the gospel have the ability to reshape and reform us into completely different people. Now last week we talked about how the ripple effect of prejudice in our society and judgment in our society can keep people from becoming the people they want to be. In effect, we look at people in their background, where they came from, and we say, well, based on who you are and where you came from, we're going to keep you inside of this box. If you were here, you remember we used that visualization of a box, and we talked about how Jesus' teaching on judgment tells us that we need to let people out of that box so that they can thrive and become different. Today, we're going to be looking at something similar to what we talked about last week in the sense that we're looking at a societal ripple effect, and this is one that impacts everybody. We're going to be talking today about the ripple effect of violence. So to begin, I'd actually like to tell you a story about our evolution as human beings. And this story, it goes back tens of thousands of years to when our human ancestors were 
living in hunter-gatherer tribes. So I want you to imagine for a second that you are a member of one of these hunter-gatherer tribes. So there's around 200 people in every tribe, and everyone depends on everybody else to get by. Everyone serves a function in these tribes, whatever that function might be. Maybe your function is to go out in the morning and to fetch water for the tribe. You have to bring it back from a watering hole. Maybe your job is to go out and to get roots and berries and mushrooms. You have to bring those back. And the thing is, is that if you don't do that, they're depending on you, nobody else will. Maybe you have to sew articles of clothing together or nets so that you can go catch fish. Maybe you have to create spears or flint knives so you can hunt animals and flay meat. The point is, you have a role, and if you don't live up to your end of the bargain, everybody else suffers. And in this way, these particular tribes, they were fiercely egalitarian. Now, when I use that word egalitarian, what I mean by that is that everybody was equal. No one person was better than anyone else. And this is how these tribes survived, is that you were there for them, and they were there for you. Now, I want you to imagine you serve whatever function you serve. You can do whatever you want to do. You want to be a water fetcher, fine. You want to go hunt animals, fine. You can do that, right? You imagine it, you're there, right? Now, I want you to imagine you're back in the central location where you all live. And you notice that one of the members of your tribe is beginning to become argumentative and combative. So this person is ordering you around, telling other people what to do, making decisions for the whole group without really consulting anyone, eating more than his fair share of food, and delegating his responsibilities out to other people who he feels are beneath him. Now, some of the members of the tribe, they approach this man and they try to talk to him. But every time they speak to him, what happens is he becomes angry and violent. It becomes clear that this man is making a power play. He wants to take over the tribe. He wants to be the one in charge. He's going to do so through brutality and force and fear, simply because he can. This one man threatens to upset the entire equilibrium of the tribe. So a group of people, they get together, and they invite you to come with them behind closed doors, and they're going to talk about this situation. What are we going to do? So some of the people in the group, they say, you know what, I think we can still talk to him. I think we can reason with him and, and get him back on track. Other people say, no, 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 that's not going to work. We need to shun him. If we shun him, then maybe he'll get back in line because if we don't talk to him, if we just ignore him, we don't give him his ration of food, that'll get him back where he needs to be. But then somebody says, no, given his propensity for bullying and violence, I don't think that those tactics are actually going to work at all because at the end of the day, he's just going to steamroll us. So he looked at the group and he says, you know what? I think we need to get rid of this guy. I think we need to kill him. Otherwise, he threatens to upset the entire stability of the tribe. And everybody goes around the circle, and they look at each other, and they say, yeah, I think that's the right thing to do. And then they come to you, and they want to know, what do you think? What's your perspective on this? You haven't said anything yet, so I pose the question to you. What are you going to do? 
You gonna go along with the group? Are you gonna kill this guy? Or are you gonna offer a different solution to this problem? Now you don't have to answer that question right now. <laughs> but I can tell you exactly what would have happened tens of thousands of years ago. They would have killed them. Absolutely. And you want to know why we know this? It's because biological anthropologists, like this guy right here, uh, Richard Rangham from Harvard University, he has studied the history of how these tribes operated. And what he has discovered is that the greatest threat to early human society was not external threats, meaning animals or even other humans. It was internal disputes among the tribes. Internal disputes among the tribes. And so when a bully would become too powerful and threaten to use violence and all these other things to overtake the tribe, then what would happen is a group of subordinate men would come together and they would band with one another and they would essentially execute the bully or bullies and restore peace to the tribe. Now what's so crazy about this scenario, which apparently happened all the time in these ancient hunter-gatherer tribes, is that violence was a necessity for humans to create a peaceable society. The idea being that a little bit of violence towards a small group of people can make life so much more enjoyable for everybody else. So Richard Rangham, he says that basically human beings became civilized at the tip of a spear. Literally, the reason why we are civilized is because of violence, which is kind of paradoxical, isn't it? Because we think of violence as being so uncivilized. But the necessity of violence for creating a peaceable society has been there for tens of thousands of years. And what people like Richard Rangham say, these biological anthropologists, is that that was passed down from one generation to the next. That was built into our genes. And you know what? If you look at the way human society evolved, he's now wrong about that. So it starts with the hunter-gatherers. You with me so far? This idea ripples out the way that it operates. So what happens is that you have for a long time all these little tribes, they're all kind of on their own, and then they start banding together, right? And they create these larger nation states that are made of tens of thousands of people. And these nation states, all of a sudden, when you have this many people, that whole egalitarian thing, you know, where everybody's equal, doesn't really work anymore, does it? So all of a sudden, you go from everybody's equal to this very strict hierarchy, and within that hierarchy, something amazing happens. Remember those guys who were killed because they wanted power and dominance over everybody else? Those guys who they got rid of? Guess what? Those guys are now reclassified as leaders. <laughs> <laughs> and they are given the authority to rule over everyone else. And so that now because these guys are in charge... What happens is the greatest threat to human society is not internal, it's now external. Because now your nation has to defend itself against other nations that want to come in and take your land and your resources. What do we read in 1 Chronicles? In the spring of the year, the time when kings would go out to battle. The reason why I think that's so interesting is that violence was built into their yearly schedule. That's what they're saying, right? 
There was an expectation that you would go out as a nation and that you would defend your borders, right? And you would defend it by fighting and shedding blood. That was an expectation that you would do that. And that worked well for a long period of time. Because what would happen is when you have a nation of similar size, yeah, you lose a little bit, you gain a little bit, but then all of a sudden the nation becomes too big, right? You gobble up one, two, and all of a sudden you have these people. And then a nation starts coming through and it just starts taking over everybody. Now what happens when the bully becomes too strong? What do you do? Well, it's very similar to what happened when we were in these hunter-gatherer tribes. You have nations, little subordinate nations, that start banding together one after the other. And what do they do? They go and they fight the big nation. And if they are able to overcome it, then there's a period of peace for a little while until another nation gets too big and then they start taking over everybody and begins the pattern and the cycle all over again. And this has been the way human society has operated for thousands of years. And so what this tells us is that there is this very natural cycle among human beings of violence and peace. They go together all the time. We can only be peaceful for so long before we have to let that violence out. And what's interesting is that the irritant that causes us to let go of our peaceful ways is very much the same as what happened when you had these little hunter-gatherer tribes. You have groups of people who make a power grab. They go out and they try to take over by means of force and violence. And then the situation repeats itself, kind of like, okay, so you remember the whole thing where I told you you're behind closed doors, you're kind of debating everything? So it happens in the same way, it's just on a much larger scale than it used to be. So, for example, somebody takes over today in our modern society, right? They take over a country, and they're using force and violence. Well, what happens initially? Everybody has to cope. They have to get used to this new situation. They're trying to adjust to life under this new regime of power. And some people, what they decide to do is that they're going to try to reason with the people in power. Right? They're going to talk to them. They're going to try to see if we can negotiate something. Other people, they just ignore it. They're just like, you know what, I'm going to put on the blinders. I'm just going to ignore the person who's in power. That's essentially the same as shunning. And when those two things don't work, when they prove to be ineffective, that's when you see pressure start to build up in a society. And as that pressure builds up, you have groups of people who band together, and they're going to restore equilibrium to the society by purging those who are in power by means of war and violence. And this has been the cycle of revolution within humanity for a long time. And this is where the ripple effect comes into play. The ripple effect is that you have our hunter-gatherer ancestors tens of thousands of years ago, and then that ripples out beyond them, and it creates the way our world operates today. As I said, it's just a much larger scale than it used to be when they were in those little 200-person tribes. Now, this ripple effect is not entirely negative, though, because these purges that happen every so often, once you get rid of those people, you have these periods of peace, and those periods of peace are what allow human society to progress forward every time it happens. When you get rid of the bad eggs, it makes it easier for the good eggs to thrive, right? Now, this brings us to the primary question of the day, though. And it's a profound question, and it's a befuddling one. Are humans capable of peace without violence? 
Is violence a necessary precursor to peace? Now, Richard Rangham and his colleagues would say, well, actually it is. You need to have violence in order to have peace. Humans don't know any other way to do it. But then you have somebody like Jesus. And Jesus built his movement around pacifism. And I want to talk about the way that he sees the world today. So we read from Matthew's Gospel, the much easier reading of the day, right? And in Matthew's Gospel, he talks about leaving behind violence as a way of life. And in that is probably one of the most famous verses that everybody knows, right? Somebody strikes you on the right cheek, what does he say? Turn the other also. Okay. So when we read this verse, it pricks at those genes inside of us, does it not? Because those genes inside of us are saying, hey, you need to defend yourself. You need to fight back. We look at that and we say to ourselves, well, if I don't fight back... Won't that just give them license to hurt me more? Those genes are telling us that we need to keep that option on the table. That if we want to restore order and equilibrium, that we need to use violence, that that needs to be something that we can always use as a last resort. The same thing is true when you read Jesus' teachings on enemies, right? Jesus says, you have heard that it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemy, huh? That sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? I thought turning the other cheek was a dumb move. But, you know, doing that, loving your enemy, that's just one step too far over the line. Now, why do we feel that way? Why do we feel that way when we, when we read this? We feel that way because it makes us feel like if we follow this through that we are going to be powerless, right? But what many people do not realize about Jesus' teachings on pacifism is that in many ways they are far more powerful than violence. And in fact, his teachings on pacifism, they strike at the core of something inside of us that is just as primal as violence. What I'm talking about is compassion. Now I want to take this concept. Let's start with if somebody strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also, right? Let's take that. Okay, now on the surface of it, right, what does that make you seem? It makes you seem submissive, does it not? Like if somebody strikes you, somebody hits you, and then you invite them to hit you again, it would seem that you are not only assenting to the punishment, but that you're welcoming it. True? That's what it feels like, doesn't it? All right. But when you look at this teaching from the perspective of the aggressor, the person who is doing the striking, you realize it's a completely different story. So I don't know if you've all ever been in a fight before, but if you have, what you know is that you are automatically going to use your dominant hand in the fight because your dominant hand is going to be much stronger. It's going to do a lot more damage. Now, most people are right-handed. So let's assume for a moment that you're going to strike somebody. What does that mean? If you're going to get a clean hit on somebody, where are you going to hit them? You're going to end up hitting them. If you're right-handed and you're looking at somebody, you're going to hit them on the left cheek, right? That's what you're going to hit them. That's the cleanest hit. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you are hitting me, okay? And one time, don't go crazy in your mind, okay? I don't want you to hit me multiple times. Hit me once, okay? Now, you hit me, right? 
What's your mind thinking at this point? When you hit somebody, what does your mind expect to happen? That I'm going to fight back, right? Immediately, that's what you expect to happen because that's usually what does happen. Now, if I don't fight back, your mind goes through a series of questions. The first question is, why isn't he fighting back? The second question is, did I not hit him hard enough? Uh, you know, is he confused? Like, what's the situation that we're looking at here, right? So just imagine that for a second, that, that that happens. Now, imagine that I don't fight back, you've hit me, and then I literally turn to the other side. Now, if you want to get a clean hit on me at this point, you can't use your dominant hand anymore. You got to use your less dominant hand. Now, if you're a boxer, that's not a big deal. But for everybody else, right, your less dominant hand is way weaker. In fact, it's probably not going to do much damage at all. And so that makes you think, if I want to get a clean hit, it may not be worth my time to hit this person. Which then brings you to the point of wondering, is it even worth continuing this fight at all? And so by following Jesus' teaching, in this instance, you have de-escalated the situation. What would have been a very bloody incident has now been reduced to a single blow. Now let's take it one step further. Let's do Jesus' teachings on loving your enemy. So imagine, right? You hit me, I don't react, I turn the other cheek, and rather than get angry or mad, I come up to you slowly, I put my arms around you, I give you a hug, and I whisper in your ear, it's okay, I love you. Now, what does that do to your mind, okay? What does that do to your mind? Like, that totally subverts everything in your mind and in your genes, right? What do you mean you love me? I just hit you right? I mean, I'm telling you, I don't like you. In fact, I hate you enough that I want to inflict harm on you. But here's what happens in that situation. When you do that, it causes your brain to do something magical, which is you are so focused on hurting me that all of a sudden it goes through a switch because when I show you love and I show you compassion, the odds are very good that you're going to show me love and compassion back because love and compassion are just as primal as violence. Now, I know some of you are sitting there and saying to yourself, I don't believe that. But I want to tell you a story of a time when that actually occurred to prove what I'm talking about. The story goes back to the civil rights movement. And it was, has to do with Martin Luther King Jr. I just want to say uh, real quick that Martin Luther King Jr., we celebrated his legacy last Monday. And uh, for those of you who are here, thank you for coming out for that. Katie Allen and Michelle Hollyfield, they did a great job getting all that together. Um, thanks, Amy, also, for, for doing everything. And Caroline, I appreciate it. So we celebrated this guy's legacy. So here's what's happening. It's September 28, 1962. There's been a four-day meeting of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And Martin Luther King Jr. is giving the final speech of that closing day. And you have to imagine, in the audience... They're all of these civil rights leaders, all of the most important leaders from around the country. They are there. So you have people who are religious leaders. You have people who have been part of the protests, the marches, the boycotts, the rallies. They're all there. These are the most important people who are trying to change the country. But there was one man in that audience who stuck out from everybody else. His name was Roy James. And although they didn't know it at the time, Roy James was a lieutenant stormtrooper in the American Nazi Party. Now, you probably didn't even know there was an American Nazi Party, but there was at one point in time. 
So he's sitting there in the audience and he's listening to King give his speech. And he's getting angrier and angrier until eventually he gets up and he rushes the stage. And he begins pummeling King in the face with his fists as hard as he possibly can. Now, as you can imagine, what happens is that all of King's associates get up and they rush him and they're trying to get this guy off of him and they're hitting him and they're pulling him. And King does something remarkable in this moment. He puts his arms around Roy James to shield him from the blows of his associates and he ends up batting them away. Get away. And he holds them close. And then, even while he's getting hit, he comes in and he whispers in Roy James's ear, I love you. Now, Roy James, in this moment, he breaks down crying. And what happens is, as he drops his fists, King, he grabs his hand, he hoists it in the air, and he says, this man is a brother. Now, as you can imagine, the crowd was absolutely shocked. They're sitting there and they're watching this and they can't believe what they're seeing, right? But this was such an important moment, such an important moment in the civil rights movement because up until this point in time, King, he had been preaching the merits of nonviolence for years. For years he'd been talking about it and he'd lived it out. He'd gone on these marches, these protests, and the police, they had beat him, they'd thrown tear gas at him, they'd sent the dogs on him. I mean, he'd had to deal with a lot up until this point. But he held to his values, and many people disagreed with him. They did not agree that nonviolence was the best way to go. They felt that they should fight back. But this incident, it changed everything because they saw firsthand how nonviolence can change the world for the better. And as a result of watching this happen, many of them made a pledge from that point forward that they were going to follow through and actually live out the tenets of nonviolence, and they mirrored their lives off of what King was doing. And it didn't just impact this one man, Roy James. It ended up changing everything about our country. I mean, just imagine it. They proved that this crazy, right, seemingly radical idea that Jesus came up with in his teachings 2,000 years ago, that it can actually work. It can actually change the world. They proved that violence is not the only way to create peace in our society. And I think that that's an amazing thing that they did. So often we look at it and we say, well, violence is the only way. And yes, violence is a much quicker solution to the problem. There is no doubt about that. Violence will get you where you want to go really fast. But love, even though it is slower, it can achieve the same end. And more importantly, you don't have to dispose of people in the process. You can do something much, much more powerful. You can transform them into different people. Love has the ability to transform a racist into a person of tolerance. Love has the ability to transform somebody who is violent into a pacifist. Love has the ability to transform a country like ours that reveled, reveled in bigotry into a country that truly stands for liberty and justice for all. And though we are not there yet, we are moving in the right direction. We still have a long way to go. And I believe that we can get there if we are willing to embrace Jesus' teachings on love and believe that they are more powerful than our propensity for violence. 
And you know how we can get there? You know why this world actually can exist? Is because if everybody who called themselves a Christian actually followed what Jesus said, we could do it. We could make it happen. How many Christians are there in the world? More than a billion. We could make an impact if we wanted to. But we have to be willing to follow those teachings and believe that they can make a difference. And so here's my prayer for you today. My prayer for you is that you might look at these teachings and not just intellectually assent to them and say, oh yeah, that sounds good. My prayer for you is that you might actually live them out in your life to the best of your ability. Because if you do that, we can break the cycle of violence being a necessity for peace. That has been the way of the world forever. Jesus offers us a different way forward. And I hope you will join me in creating a world where we don't need violence to create peace. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.